Hello, I'm David Mosgraub. Welcome to Open to Debate. As Canada and the world watched a convoy roll across the country to Ottawa, occupy the capital, and terrorize the city, those who have long warned about the risks of the far right and white supremacists reminded us that this has been a long time coming. Canada has long ignored and neglected growing extremist movements while condemning, suppressing, and over-policing morally just protest and state resistance. It's cheap and easy to try to apply a one-size-fits-all analysis to all those who push back against the state. That impulse should be resisted. We ought to distinguish between forms of protest and between morally just and unjust causes. That work starts by understanding how different movements are treated differently in the current climate, including by asking, who gets to protest? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Ms. Squasson Agnew, an Indigenous activist and knowledge keeper. So let's start with your work. I, I want to start by getting a sense of, of, of who you are and, and what has brought you to your work. So can you tell me a little bit about your activist efforts and how you got started? Hello, my name is Red Stone Woman. I'm from the Wolf Clan. I am Cree and Dene. I currently live in Brampton, Treaty 19 Territory. And uh, my roots are from Salt River First Nation, Northwest Territories, but I grew up here in Ontario. Um, and my intro there was in Anishinaabe um, because I've grown up in Ontario. Um, my grandfather, uh, Don, he attended residential school from the time he was five till he was about 15. Um, and he had a, um, a really hard life and he's still with us today. Um, and my dad, he was adopted out um, during that time on the 60s and 70s where a lot of um, First Nations kids were put up for adoption. And uh, yeah, my dad kind of came over to Ontario um, and found work here. And um, I will say that my dad, you know, he struggled as well, right? And um, growing up with him, <clears throat> excuse me, it was, um, yeah, growing up with my dad, it was um, interesting to see the dynamic in the intergenerational trauma and the, in, in that, you know, struggle. I went through that myself. And so that's kind of my roots and how I've grown into the woman that I am today, an Indigenous woman. And, um, you know, in that youth struggle, I found that um, Western, like, ways of, like, counseling and things like that were not really reaching me. And um, I had a really awesome opportunity to meet my elder, uh, May Wasage. Um, he's an Anishinaabe man. He's from Nea Cape Croker community. And he took me in at a pretty young age. And um, through him, I've been really, um, you know, lucky to learn the culture and um, be really um, a part of his community and uh, learned ceremony and drumming and dancing and um, that's all um, you know uh, has allowed me to take a lot of pride in my community and um, 
learning about the history of my community um, has really helped me make sense of, you know, kind of why things are the way they are. And um, I, by trade, I'm a millwright mechanic. Um, I was introduced to um, activism through the labor movement um, during my mechanic days. And through the labor movement, I met a lot of like local activists who really encouraged me, um, you know, to, to really stand up for my community and what I believe in. And um, I started doing um, ceremonies in the community or vigils rather. Um, when the news of the 215 came out and our relatives were being recovered um, and um, you know, I was able to bring the community together to memorialize those children. And through that, um, I started to really enjoy gathering our community and teaching folks about our ways. And I think it's through education, um, you know, that we can make a big difference that work had led me to leave my mechanic days and I actually work at Hope 247 which is um, a sexual assault crisis center in Peel and the work that I do there is really interesting. I get to be an activist full-time um, and they have basically tasked me with defunding the Peel Regional Police um, which really hits close to home because growing up in Peel, like I've experienced crisis in this city and for me defunding is about refunding the social services in our community um, and certainly culturally appropriate care, crisis de-escalation, trauma-informed care, harm reduction and things like that. Um, and so that really came full circle for me and in that work um, it was really important to me to reach out to Indigenous community here in the GTA and we started well they my relatives had already started um, taking over Young Dundas Square and it be, started becoming a really big part of my life and the reason why we did that is we wanted to stand in solidarity with our Haudenosaunee relatives, our Wet'suwet'en relatives, and just, you know, our relatives from all, all over Turtle Island. And um, we wanted to, um, you know, stand in solidarity for them. And eventually we started calling it Land Back Square, um, you know, to kind of tongue-in-cheek with the uh, you know, 1492 Land Back Lane and, and, you know, name it after the movement. But eventually we decided that we would actually get serious about it. And Toronto City Council has approved the renaming of uh, Dundas Street. And um, a few of my relatives and land defenders um, that have been in that movement with me of, you know, taking over Land Back Square every Sunday, you know, not letting traffic through. What we did is, you know, we educated community um, through storytelling, through drumming, through ceremony, and um, 
Yeah, we're hoping to have um, an elder from Mississauga First Nation come and rename that, that place so that, um, you know, there's an Indigenous presence there and it's an Indigenous space. And uh, just reminding, you know, everyday folks that um, we're on Indigenous land and our people are still here and our communities are thriving and... Um, yeah, so it's been a journey um, and getting into land back work um, in unison with the funding um, has kind of come full circle in, in terms of um, decolonization, right? And um, yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting to see the um, reaction that we get from community and, uh, you know, how Indigenous folks are regarded in the media and by community, you know. I, I want to get into, uh, so I, I came across you and your work by way of, of uh, Norman Wilner's piece and podcast with Now, and I found uh, that extraordinarily interesting, and, and he was digging into this in the context of the, of the convoy and the occupation in Ottawa, and um, I, you know, when it was over, I, I was left thinking, I, I want to hear more, I want to know more. And that's part of what inspired this episode and, and this longer sort of deep dive focused conversation with you. And so one of the things I want to get into now is, is uh, how different movements, resistant efforts and protests are treated differently. And I, I, I want to talk about both the media and the police, but I want to start with the media. Uh, having, uh, you know, done the work that you've done, uh, having seen what happened in Ottawa with the occupation. Have you got a sense that the, the media are treating the different movements, different resistances, different protests in different ways? What, what's, your, what's your sense of how that's been covered? Oh, you know, I think for a good solid month there, all we saw on the, in the news was the Ottawa convoy protests, right? Um, you know, we, we were just totally flooded with that. And in that same time, um, the news of 93 children from Williams Lake First Nation had come out um, that they were recovered in mass graves, unmarked graves, um, in the um, area around St. Joseph's Mission. Um, you know, that's 93 kids who died and it didn't happen, you know, a hundred years ago. It's very um, new and fresh for our communities. We've known that they were there, um, but you know, it's a, it's a really traumatic time. And I think the numbers for um, the children that have been recovered are well over um, 7,000 now. Some folks say it's closer to 10,000. We don't even have um, an accurate account of how many children have been recovered. Um, and, you know, we held a vigil for them because, um, well, we held a vigil for them in Landback Square and we had made a short march over to Ryerson, ex university. And we had a memorial ceremony for them in front of the university and we lit some candles there um, to call attention to the children that were found because we didn't really hear about it in the media. It was, you know, it, it was very brief. 
mm-hmm. that there was, you know, not a lot of like um, press conferences about it. Um, you know, it was just really brushed over. You know, they they mentioned it in passing along with the weather and, and you know, sports and things like that. And it's really harmful for Indigenous community to see that and not even be given a chance to mourn our ancestors and our relatives and then to be kind of flooded with all this uh, imagery about, you know, uh, white supremacy, right? It, mm-hmm. it was it was a really hard time, and in just past, 169 more children were found on um, March 1st from Gerard uh, Mission Site, and um, I'm I, I don't I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's Capoeno First Nation in in Alberta. Um, you know, we barely heard anything about that, and. Um, we keep finding more and more children and it's you know it's it's really crazy how if you know it seems like when tragedy strikes racialized communities um it doesn't really get a lot of media coverage and um yeah it's you know it's been really difficult to see that in the sense that you know i think um people have forgotten about the children that are being found. Uh, one of the things I've, I've noticed in watching the media coverage is that when these tragedies are covered, you know, one of the common frames is, I can't believe this is us, or you know, this isn't the Canada I know. And having listened to communities and folks in communities, uh, racialized communities, and indigenous communities, uh, one of the lessons that I've learned is that this is a very much the Canada uh, that we have been for a very, very long time, even though a lot of people may not recognize or acknowledge it. And I'm curious from your perspective, I mean, how does it feel to be on your end of, of watching this this framing of, of, of this couldn't possibly be Canada when you know a different Canada? And the real Canada, we, you know, we might say. So our grandmothers and our grandfathers have known for a long time that... Um, you know, their children were out there or their children who never came home. Our aunties and our uncles have, you know, brothers and sisters that they have never seen again, never to be heard from. Um, you know, there's stories of children being thrown into incinerators. Um, you know, there are some children that will never be recovered and will never know what happened to them. And when you think about that and the reality of you know the last residential school closed in 96 you know Mm. that's not so long ago and it's it's really hard to not be given the time to grieve that um and the stories are still coming out and and you know survivors of residential school are still alive and well today and um that trauma is still very real in our communities. So when we see, you know, um, those stories being ignored, um, it definitely feels like it's trying to be hidden once more because we've been telling folks, our communities have been telling folks that, you know, our kids were out there for a long time. Mm-hmm. 
So, so I want to, to transition away from the media framing and, and public understanding to, to another institution, the police. And I, I'm curious how, what difference you've seen in, in policing practices, say between the work that you've done or looking at you know, past movements, uh, GT, G20 protest resistance, uh, unhoused folks in parks, what sort of land defenders, uh, blockades, uh, and how, say, uh, the, the occupation was handled uh, in, in Ottawa. Uh, you know, what, uh, especially from, from your experience, what's, what's been the, the takeaways from watching the police treat one group a certain way and another group a different way? Um, I'm sure you can recall not so long ago, um, the OPP and Foxgate development, um, and our relative, our Haudenosaunee relatives, um, protecting their territory and the, the OPP raids that happened, um, when Foxgate development had basically, you know, taken that territory without proper consulting with the community. And there was a day where the police had gone in to try and remove land offenders. So yeah, the OPP had come in to raid a 1492 land back lane that's on Argyle Street. Um, basically defending that territory from Foxgate development and the OPP. And that day, um, you know, the Mohawks, don't, they don't back down. Mm-hmm. And um, the OPP had actually fired rubber bullets at land defenders. And um, I, I had called um, a friend last night who was there. And I, I asked him to tell me the story of that day. And because in the media, the OPP only admitted to firing one rubber bullet. Um, But, you know, my relative who was there was telling me, you know, that that was not the case. In fact, there was um, a location uh, across the street um, that had been taken back by Mohawk land defenders um, several years ago, it was a safety zone and there was even rubber bullets fired in that direction and there was elders and children in that tent. And so we're thinking like this is last year, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not so long ago that, you know, this happened where, you know, our land defenders are literally literally being shot at. Um, then we can think about how some of the warriors there had gone out to Wet'suwet'en territory to go uh, defend the Winsinkwa and um, how the RCMP had raided the camps, the camps there, you know, um, with dogs and, you know, like what looked like to be like a hundred officers and military gear for a few land offenders and an elder, you know, and you could see like there's no hesitation for the police to militarize when it comes to um, removing Indigenous folks from their traditional and sovereign territory. But when it comes to Ottawa, Oh my goodness, if there was rubber bullets fired at any of those protesters, it would have been international news, you know? And and so um, you could see how the police have no 
hesitation in using military tactics towards indigenous folks. But when it's predominantly um, white folks, you know, blocking the streets and in, in Ottawa and, you know, um, really important um, institutions, you know, for weeks and weeks on end, and then being allowed to leave the blockades in the vehicles that mm -hmm. they block the streets with. Um, you know, I think Doug Ford had come out and said, um, the Mohawk land defenders were a bunch of bad apples um, and had really deployed the OPP to go in and, you know, take back, you know, what Foxgate development thought was theirs. Whereas, you know, we're seeing with the Ottawa protesters, you know, they were supposed to all be charged $100,000. And it seems like the Conservative government is not following through on that. So, um, you know, you can see how the how we're being treated differently. And um, I don't think that um, people really notice that. And also, you know, um, it's not just like the direct violence, I guess you could say. It's also the way like the casual interactions between protesters and the police as well, mm -hmm. where as like it's a very hostile interaction with land offenders when they're protecting their territory. It's never the same interaction. What, one of the things I found so interesting, and this was reported by Press Progress, was that police had met with organizers ahead of time and had a sense of what they had planned and let things go ahead anyway. And now we look back and say, well, we couldn't have seen this coming. Well, you know, first of all, absolutely we could have. But even in theory, if, if you couldn't have, well, that's a problem too, because, uh, you know, institutions give the benefit of the doubt to these occupiers that they would never give to land defenders uh, or to G20 protesters or to, you know, unhoused folks living in a park. I mean, they just don't give the benefit of the doubt to these communities, but they certainly do to, to the, you know, occupiers. And again, you know, Canadians turned around and said, I can't believe this is us. And it's just so stunning to me to hear that because, you know, quite plainly, this is us. <laughs> it's just, and the fact that people don't, uh, can't see that coming is, isn't an excuse for it, right? I just, um, you know. Well, it's, it's historical. If we look at the Oka crisis in Kanasatake, that was a huge standoff. That, mm -hmm. that was, that that was um, historical in the terms of you know the land back movement, right? And we saw how um, you know the police had militarized against land defenders for protecting again their sovereign territory. So to say that you know oh we can't believe that this is happening in Canada it, again, I I also have difficulty with that because this is not new. This has yeah. been happening for a long time, um, you know, and, and I think that um, to, to claim ignorance is, is again, where we're putting up blinders so that, you know, it, it's interesting what folks view as like, okay, in terms of protesting and then land defenders are, are not protesters, rather they're terrorists. 
And it, you know, it, it, it was particularly offensive because in Ottawa, this was happening on Algonquin land. And I just thought, you know, if, if uh, you know, Al Algonquin, uh, if the Algonquin community had, had done the same thing, they would have been treated very differently on their own land. Yeah. And yet you get occupiers from outside of it, in some ways, double, uh, double colonial play. And uh, they were excused. I mean, they got to set up a hot tub. <laughs> I just, I, you know, I'm still to this. I, I know I'm, I'm not, you know, I, the word incredulous is wrong because I, 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 I'm not surprised by it. But I suppose, is it possible to be not surprised but stunned at the same time? You know, <laughs> it's something like that. Because it's uh, just, you know, it's truly next level offensive and absurd. I, I just... Yeah, you know, I um, I agree. It's it, it it almost seems like it's really easy to turn a blind eye to it all. Also, like during a pandemic as well. Mm -hmm. Like, so my Haudenosaunee relatives are still occupying that territory that Boxgate Development had to, tried to take. They're still very much there, and you know they're. There's um, court injunctions, so, you know, land offenders can't leave that territory without being criminalized. So, you know, we see the struggle is still happening. You know, um, land offenders out in wetsuits and territory are still in, in camps, you know, defending the Wenzinqua from the RCMP, right? It, they're still out there. They're still doing the work. And yet, where is the media coverage? Yep. Actually, I, I want to use that to get into a, a, a deeper substantive question about how we evaluate different protests, because we have this tendency in, in liberal societies to sort of say, okay, well, we're going to treat everything equally at the start. Everything's just going to be the same, and it doesn't really matter what you stand for. Uh, there's a set of rules, there's a set of expectations, and they apply to everybody, and we can't go around picking what's good and what's bad. And, you know, one of the criticisms that people like me raise is, um, you know, sometimes you need to choose what's good and what's bad and, and apply rules differently. That there's a difference between a land offender and, uh, you know, a white occupier who doesn't happen to like this government and doesn't like mask mandates or whatever it might be. Uh, and, you know, it, it is there for several other reasons, too, that we've, we, that we've discussed. Um, if we can't see a difference between those two things and how we treat movements, then we're going to end up with a big problem. I'm curious if there's an anti-colonial or decolonial lens we can apply when looking at protests to sort of evaluate just and unjust movements. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, on what that might look like. Yeah, so for me, um, the distinction is about our sovereign territory our independence and basically you know it's it our land is in relation to who we are as a people and this has this you know struggle has been ongoing since the colonization of our people and of this territory um you know um, okay, so for example, both of my parents are truck drivers, and I was not a supporter of the convoy for obvious right. reasons. 
um, and, and, and neither were they. And, and so for me, you know, I, I know, and they knew that it really wasn't about the truckers. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a movement that had clearly been hijacked. Um, it was very evident that it had ties to, um, you know, right wing, um, white supremacy. And there was hate symbols there. Um, and it was very performative, whereas the land that land offenders are protecting, literally our communities depend on that land for their own well-being. And they still live off of the land, especially out in wetsuits and territory. And it's, it's, it's you know, oh gosh, it, it's easy to kind of, I think, let the narrative of social media as well take over mm -hmm. uh, and people not doing the work of making those decisions for themselves. Um, I noticed that like for myself and my own social media streams, there was a lot of like relatives that I have or even, you know, just friends that were supporters of the convoy that you know, I, I was very shocked to see that um, because they were otherwise left-leaning people. Um, so, yeah, for me, the distinction of how there was a lot of deception in the movement, that there was a lot of folks there that really weren't sure why they were there. Whereas in being a land offender, it's a necessity, it's a way of life, it's a need, it's an immediate need. Um, you know, what the pipeline threat, what CGL pipeline um, is a threat to the Wet'suwet'en community um, in such a huge way in their day-to-day -day lives, right? So I think it's all about, you know, going to the foundation of it, of, looking at a decolonial lens of like, what do we value? Because when we're on the front lines defending our territories, it's not a party. There mm -hmm. are no hot tubs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, if you go to a rally or a protest and you're seeing such a diverse group and you're willing to sympathize with symbols that represent white supremacy, there's danger in that. And we have to stick with our values and remember who we are as a people in remembering the seven generations that came before us, right? I think that we've really lost touch with um, doing that inner self work before we become overnight activists <laughs> right. there was a lot of folks in ottawa that had probably never been to a rally before in their life and so i think that you know as we look into the reasons why folks were there you know were they really there for the right reasons so, you know, there was there a lot of like 
inner reflection before they had stepped out to join the rally? I, I would venture to guess that there was not from the sense that I got. I mean, I, I wasn't too, too far from the heart of it. And I, I mostly stayed away from it for a handful of reasons. But, uh, you know, your point that when you're out there, you're not, there are no hot tubs is, is an important one because this was treated in many cases as a party. I mean, this it was a party atmosphere for them. Um, and it, it got the sense, you got the sense of observing it that, that for many of them, it was a bit of a lark. It was, they were just, you know, having, having fun, um, while terrorizing the community, of course, because they were also, you know, terrorizing folks. Uh, I don't, you know, and what bothered me with a lot of the policing, the coverage was just the, and this isn't, you know, uh, a unique experience was how inconsistent ultimately was all the way down because this is not what land defender movements do. It's not what the G20 protesters were, were trying to do. Um, you know, some, some windows being smashed in, in the G20 case, notwithstanding. And uh, if we can't wrap our heads around saying that these things are different, I just don't know how we're going to deal with the far right and white supremacy in this country. I just, if we're equating that with land defenders, I just, it seems to me that we're not even beginning to be in the right place to think about this, let alone deal with it. I just, I, I find it interesting. Um, in Ottawa, there was also indigenous folks there. Um, you also saw a lot of settler folks wearing every child matters shirts. Mm. Um, there was the mockery of our culture, the, I don't, I don't know what you would call it. Um, there was a lot of that and it's interesting. Those folks who were there in the name of indigenous activism, are they going to be there with us on the front lines in the future? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Were they were they really there for us as allies? And and because they they're not going to be there. Right? And 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 for me that's how I can distinguish the performatism. And 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 that's why I call them overnight activists is because I I can't help but wonder where have you been? <laughs> you know, where was this energy when when we needed you? Yeah, I, 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 to your point, I, I don't super expect them to show up at the next, um, you know, at the next blockade for the for uh, pipeline blockade. You know, I just truly, I mean, it, it, the appropriation to me was was. I, I'm I'm trying to figure out if I can still be surprised by the actions of people like this, and I and I want to say no because I sort of expect this sort of thing from uh, that sort of occupier but part of me is still surprised in in even though i shouldn't be in this day and age that you can have that appropriation and that those people truly believe it's okay i mean what what struck me is that you know i got the sense that they truly believed that what they were doing was okay and respectful and inclusive and i just think can, maybe you just cannot reach someone like that. Maybe that person is just too far gone. You know, if, if that's truly what someone believes that that was okay and even good, then 
they're so far gone that I don't even know what you what you say to someone like that, right? I just I remember um, during the time of the Highway Six blockades, um, there were blockades in solidarity with the uh, Wet'suwet'en relatives. I was on the Via Rail um, from Union Station, and I was headed to Oshawa, and um, I remember being on the platform waiting for the train and there's these two older white gentlemen standing not too far from me and i could overhear their conversation and basically they were very very annoyed with the delay in their commute because of the um, rail blockades that were happening mm-hmm. but it wasn't just the annoyance of their day-to-day commute um, it was the racial slurs that were a part of that conversation that struck me the most. Was it casually being thrown around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember getting on the train and and sitting kind of close by with one earphone in to just really listen to what they were saying and you know, to see if they would consider why our people were there. Mm-hmm. And, and and it was the same sentiment of like, you know, well, why don't they get a job and yeah. they want everything for free. And <laughs> there was a lot of that happening, right? And when I saw the protests in Ottawa, I couldn't help but think to myself is like, how can these people afford this time off? Oh yeah, yes. It it's a very just, good question. <laughs> Who's paying their bills? Why don't they get a job? You know, where yep. was that sentiment when those people were there, right? And and also you saw like how the public support that they had in the terms of like the GoFundMe and stuff like that. Like it's, you know, um, land back movements do not get that level of support, yeah. right? And then, so part of that GoFundMe was supposedly um, to donate to First Nations community um, to end boil water advisories. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I just couldn't help but laugh because it's like these efforts have not, been overnight things like they've been around for a while so the performatism of just the whole uh movement was just really i I, i'm still in disbelief um and and in terms of how like public the public regards what happened there versus land defenders i i i still struggle with that and having to coexist in a colonial world where, you know, I listen to the world with one headphone in kind of mm. a thing, right? Because, you know, there's danger in ignoring it, but at the same time, how do, how do we how do we cope? How do we coexist, right? And so I think that we can't shy away from going out and having our own rallies and regardless of public opinion um we have to keep doing the work yeah 
Well, I think that's a, a an excellent point on which to end because that brings us to time. So I want to start by saying thank you so much for joining me and, and for sharing your experience and your knowledge and expertise with me today. I very much appreciate it. I know our listeners will too. Oh, miigwech. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure and an honor. And um, thank you for, you know, taking the time to hear the other side of the story. <laughs> always, always. It, it's it's what we do and, and we're very happy that we get to do it. And we're very happy that uh, you were able to join us and, and to be a part of that. So thanks again. And uh, as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith and to Aaron Reynolds and now to uh, Aisha Jara, who has joined us as well uh, as part of the team. They make the podcast not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. So my thanks to them as well. And we'll see you back here in two weeks.